The Geotechnical Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. This episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast is brought to you by PPI, a leader in engineering exam prep for the FE and PE exams. PPI provides expert prep courses and study resources designed to help you pass the FE and PE exams the first time. PPI's live online courses include hours of lectures, problem-solving demonstrations, exam strategy sessions, office hours, and a passing guarantee. When you take a live online course, PPI guarantees you will pass or you can take the on-demand course for free. PPI's reputation and history sets them apart. PPI has helped engineers achieve their licensing goals since 1975. Check out PPI today at PPI, the number two, pass.com to see all the options available for FE and PE exam prep. Again, that's PPI, the number two, P-A-S-S.com. Hello, and welcome to the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. In this episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast, I'll be talking with Stefan Flynn, a geotechnical engineer in the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, Rock Island District. We'll be talking about flood restoration and his involvement on some major flood projects, such as the Cedar Rapids project in Iowa and the rebuilding of levees after the 2019 Midwest flooding. I'm your host, Jared Green, and this is the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast, a podcast focused on helping geotechnical engineers stay up to date with technical trends in the field. And with that, let's jump right into today's episode. Stefan, welcome to the show. How are you doing, man? Doing great. Glad to be on. Listen to every episode. Big fan. Oh, that's great. You did your homework. Yes, sir. I'm curious. I understand that you were a fullback for the fighting. Is it fighting Scots? Yeah, the uh, Monmouth College fighting Scots. Tell me a little bit about that. How did you transition towards engineering? That seems kind of different from football. My path to becoming an engineer is somewhat circuitous. It's a little bit uh, unique. Going into college, I pretty much knew I wanted to be a civil engineer. And, you know, that's for all the normal reasons, being good at math in school, enjoying the problem-solving aspects, wanting to build bridges, right? That's kind of like the story for half of engineers. Kind of what makes my story a little bit unusual is that for my undergrad education, I did what's called a pre-engineering or dual degree program. So at Monmouth College, I majored in physics and ended up with a Bachelor of Arts there. And a portion of those credits were shared with SIUE or Southern Illinois University at Edwardsville, where I got my BS in civil engineering. I basically double majored while going to two different schools. How this worked out, how this ties into football is that Monmouth gave me the opportunity to eventually work towards being an engineer, but it gave me the opportunity to play football too, which at 18 years old, that's about the most important thing, right? I, I get to keep playing. You know, I wasn't good enough to be D1, so it all worked out. I guess that's a good point to clarify for, you know, maybe some of our East Coast listeners that, yes, it's Monmouth College, not Monmouth University. It's a private liberal arts school in Western Illinois that competes in NCAA Division Three. And it's a lot of juggling, right? You got the sports and then the classes and the travel. Like, hey, you work a lot out. 
Monmouth juggling school football, you know, and even it's what we all had to do, you know, being a physics major there, it's magnified, right? Because you're spending honestly extra hours on homework. There's a ton of labs you got to take to get the degree that all keeps going during the football season, right? It, it doesn't stop for game. So I think out of what, probably 120 players on the team, I think any given year we had at most two or three of us that were doing the physics route. There are absolutely times where it was difficult and uh, led to a lot of midnight oil being burnt. Because even though uh, I went to a smaller school, you know, a lot of the time demands are this are the same as a D1 school or similar to a D1 school, right? Because you practice the same amount of days, you have to go to film, and you still got to balance out with the full course load. It was a lot, but I'm ultimately very grateful for the experience, even in terms of my professional life now, because I didn't just get to learn time management, I had to learn time management. When you think about position like a fullback, there's a lot of plays that are running through you. So there's teamwork, there's leadership, and I imagine that those things transcend into the way you do business now, right? You're probably pulling from some of those lessons, I'd imagine. Being a fullback can be a selfless position. Going back to the football, talking through some of the leadership aspects, I guess. Being a fullback, yeah, you're selfless, but you know, you're also part of the team. You're out there with everybody else. And terms of leadership, understanding how to overcome, really lead through adversity is hugely important. And it's you know, a big part of it. And part of that's having a short memory. A former coach of mine really preached not being too high on the highs or too low on the lows. And that's something I've taken forward in life. And that applies to every day. It applies to training, getting through the daily, the weekly, the monthly grind. Playing football taught me that, you know, you don't have to just reset your day at some point. Sometimes you got to reset after the next play if you're going to have any kind of success. You can apply that mindset to engineering pretty simply, right? You know, so you make an error in a calculation or you miss something in a construction submittal that, you know, later seems like, how did I miss that? So the little mistakes, you know, you have to be able to accept it. You got to be able to learn from it and then reset, you know, have that short memory. So being able to project and instill that mindset and a team that you might be leading, that's a crucial part of leadership. I'd agree with that, Stefan. There are so many times, especially as geotechs, right? You have black, you have white, but then there's so much gray area in what we do, right? Because it's soil, it's rock, it's bed, you know, water. And oftentimes you have a tough day in the field and some folks that stays with them. And some folks are on, I've dealt with, they've, they've kind of overcome this, but I think about earlier in their career and it's like, they had a bad Monday. I already knew they're going to have a bad week. It was like, I'm gone. Like I've lost you for the week. And I remember trying to explain that you're right. You have to, I like the concept of the short memory. It's like, you have to let it go and then move forward. It's like so important. You're going to have small mistakes. You might have big mistakes, but you got to learn from it and keep moving. Work goes on, life goes on. I've hired a number of uh, student athletes and I've heard a lot of stories about what you learn as an athlete. It stays with you for your um, career and you become a leader. You kind of draw from those experiences. So pretty cool to hear you're echoing the same. I understand you worked on the Cedar Rapids project in Iowa. We just dealt with Hurricane Ida. Some of, of us are uh, still mopping out the basements. That's a city where you have consistent annual flooding, right? Can you tell us more about your involvement on the project? To the point of the consistent flooding, they were hit pretty hard back in 2008, which 
eventually led to them being receiving supplemental funding, long-term disaster relief supplemental funding that was put in place about three years ago to help put in, into place a flood risk management system, you know, a levy flood wall system. My role in the project is as the geotechnical lead for the Corps of Engineers. I got into that role right away when the project got spun back up in 2018. In my role, I cover the east side of the, the project. So Cedar River splits Cedar Rapids. So we have an east side project, west side project. The overall project is shared responsibility between the city of Cedar Rapids and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. It's about a $550 million project, I think, were the initial estimates overall for everything. But the Corps' main involvement to date has been on the east side. And as the geotech lead, I've provided geotechnical oversight to a very diverse team of the Rock Island District. We have other districts within the Corps that have done work on it. Uh, St. Paul is actively working on a reach. St. Louis was involved early on. And then also several design contracts are being done by AE firms or, you know, private engineering firms. It's a big responsibility in kind of coordinating all that effort. In the process, I've been able to develop project-specific geotechnical design guidance. So, you know, we're looking at seepage, slope stability, foundations, that sort of stuff to maintain consistency and, you know, follow core guidance. I've also been involved in the reviews of all projects from a geotechnical standpoint. And then one of the, the major tasks early on was leading the geotechnical investigations. So this project had been through feasibility between five and 10 years ago, and we had some data, but not nearly enough to design a project of this magnitude. So, so part of my role was working with local testing and drilling agency to get all this new information, which ended up being you know, well over 300 points. And when I say points, I'm talking about borings or CPTs. It's all of that plus the testing and data that comes from it. So it's been just about everything geotech you can possibly think of from getting the data, communicating the data. I even was the lead designer on one of our levy reaches. So that was a pretty cool experience too, to get into a team instead of just being the coordination role. They're like multiple consultants that like for those 300 points, was that work that was awarded to a handful of consultants or did you have like one consultant responsible for that? Or? That was one company, Terracon there in Cedar Rapids did the work for that. So they were busy for a little over a year. Other contracts we had, Stantec did some of it, but it was, it was primarily Terracon on this project who did a great job. The guys in their Cedar Rapids office are really great to work with. Where are you in the project? In the beginning, towards the middle, it's a long lead. I mean, it sounds like a pretty big project. That dollar amount's pretty massive. It's a big one. It's the biggest one we've done in Rock Island for a long time, but we've been at it for about three years now. And I would say we're getting near the end of design. We have started some of the projects in construction in the last year. I would consider us somewhere near the halfway point. It's a really interesting time right now to kind of be wrapping up designs for some parts and seeing some parts start to get built. What happens, you know, when you're putting together a project of that scale, right? And then people start talking about sea level rise, global warming. I mean, there are times that you kind of look back at the plans and say, we need to rethink things or that gets complicated, right? Because it's already tied to funding that's been allotted. But how does that work? Essentially, you get a finite amount of money to work on this project. You know, you might have to modify that down the road, but 
these supplemental projects are supposed to be on a very tight schedule. And if, if things come up that say, oh, you know, I don't know, maybe the hydraulic modeling shows something different than it did three years ago. You know, we got more data and we need to update it. You address those things as efficiently as you can and you have to be adaptable and willing to take a step back and think about it. It's a system, right? It's even if you're building one part and a part, another part's in design, it in the end, when the whole project's complete, it's, it better work. So you got to be adaptable to these sort of things. You were involved with the rebuilding of levees after the 2019 Midwest flooding, and that affected nearly 14 million people. So for listeners that might not be familiar with what happened, can you explain that and also talk about your involvement for rebuilding those levees? In 2019, uh, there's pretty widespread flooding in the Midwest. We we're affected pretty heavily here in the Mississippi River Basin, but also the Missouri River had some very substantial flooding and maybe even the Ohio. So it's you know a very big part of the country that we're dealing with these floods. And speaking for my area of responsibility here along the Mississippi, Illinois rivers, Des Moines River, that part of the country, a lot of this was driven largely by ground conditions being heavily saturated. And that's because we had a cold and wet fall, a cold and wet winter, and then we got some more rain in the spring and early summer. So it was, it was a perfect storm for flooding in that sense. The damages from this flood were huge, well into the billions. I think the ASCE estimated $20 billion and economic damage. And then really, this probably doesn't even capture the full scale because there are longer term costs that aren't realized until years later, you know, things that might not get addressed. So it was a very, very big deal. And my involvement with the flood was really two pronged because working for the Corps, we get involved in the flood fight. And on the Upper Miss and Rock Island District, you know, that's something we do when a flood comes. We're immediately getting out there and supporting the local stakeholders, local levy sponsors, and, you know, assisting them, giving them technical guidance the best we can. In my area, specific sub area, I guess, uh, down by Quincy, Illinois, they experienced, I think, the third highest flood on record. Looking back, I think 2008 and 1993 were slightly higher, but it was also spread. It was kind of unique that there were two different crests that were about a month apart, so it was a long fight. During that time, there was one night in particular where it was right near the, the second major crest where we were actively fighting a levee that was eroding into the river. And I learned a lot from the experience because first, you're getting to see actual performance of a levee. You know, you're getting to see what we're designing for. But more importantly, you got to see the community down there, how they respond when times are getting pretty tough, getting pretty serious. There were probably 50 local citizens on the levee that night. I don't know how far they came from, but this is folks getting out at midnight to 3 a.m. to throw sandbags, put poly over a levee. And, you know, had we not had that help, maybe we would have lost the levee. And a lot of not only industry that was behind that levee, but also the homes and folks that might not have been able to get out. So it was definitely an impactful experience and I'll certainly never forget. How does one coordinate that fight? I mean, is it, are people getting text messages to say, meet us at the levee? Like, how are you coordinating that? Is that something that you have trial runs every month? I mean, what does that look like? From the core side, our district emergency management agency coordinates the different team members for the different flood areas. That's a pretty tried and true method. You know, it's, hey, you guys need to be down here. But in terms of 
folks that are already in the area, it's somebody gets their cell phone out, starts calling everybody they know and, hey, we're not doing so good out here. And the people show up because they care. So I don't know their full communication process, but it's get everybody you can. I worked in New York for many years. I remember around the time of when Superstorm Sandy happened, people were struggling to get the floodgates constructed because you know they just weren't ready. Some projects were under construction. Some of the floodgates weren't high enough and you were hearing stories of water just toppling over because it, they just weren't high enough. So a lot to think about. Where do you store your sandbags? Like, How do you coordinate that effort? That's, we appreciate the work you're doing. It takes a lot of planning and it takes a lot of people. That's for sure. And when you say the fight, like if the crest, if there's a month between, then you're not sleeping. There are people down there. It looks like it's going down, but not far enough. So we keep people on site and ready to react if needed. I mean, luckily with the Mississippi being such a big basin, you forecasting, you can project river rise multiple days out. So that helps. But it was such that we kind of had to wait for the next one, wait it out and just took a turn back up. So this is very unique. What are some of the emergency procedures to follow during floods and what should people not be doing during floods? This might be stuff that people know that flood a lot. I would tell my kids, it's like we have parts of the nation to flood all the time. We have other places that are like in droughts. What are things that people need to be thinking about? Preparing for floods, to me, so much of it boils down to the risk communication. When you're working on a project or managing a project that are living behind a project even that's intended to manage flood risk or work as a flood control structure, it's important that everybody that could be affected by a failure knows the extent of what could happen. By having that general awareness, you know, you're more able to handle these extreme events when the time comes because you're able to have a plan in place that everybody understands. In terms of levees, flood walls, this could be as simple as somebody knowing that they're in the floodplain, but also being able to have your plan in place from an organizational side, from the core side, or from a city or local flood district to know, okay, hey, this road closure needs to go in this many days before river reaches 20 foot. Or, you know, having pumps staged a week in advance and knowing that they run, it's so important to understand your system. I've seen from the core side so much emphasis put on risk communication in the past few years. And, you know, it's for good reason. Just the last two big dam risk assessments that I did these past two years, I've seen updates to these risk assessments uh, looking at their consequences that have revealed, you know, hey, we were previously underestimating our population at risk by an order of magnitude. And, you know, at times some of these communities weren't aware of what a real flood looked like. As we continue to develop in floodplains, whether that be commercial, residential, you know, whatever reason you name it, it just drives home that point that we really need to be communicating that risk. And that's awareness is, is what's really going to make a big difference in the end. What can engineers do to help prevent and maybe even minimize the flooding of dams and levees? Unfortunately, we can't really prevent floods, right? Because nature is an inevitable force. But what we can do, right, is we can work towards minimizing the damage by managing our risk. That's not only the things like the communication measures that are non-structural, but as engineers, we can minimize risk with our structural components of systems as well that we're ensuring that we're designing the best systems you know, we possibly can. That's where a lot of times we come in. 
And being able to make our systems better comes from continuously learning from these events and applying the data to improve our decisions, improve our methods. And that's something, too, that comes not only in practice, but in research. It's not just the folks working every day on dams and levees that are learning these lessons. We've got you know, so many people in academia that think about this on a daily basis, right? Looking at flood risk, looking at climate change, these things that are going to impact our future. When these different worlds, the different disciplines of hydraulics, geotech structures, but also I guess the different worlds of academia and practice come together to make solutions, we're only going to improve the way we do business as engineers. So I guess the main point to drive home is we got to take the real data and learn from it and not be afraid to change and adapt. Before we take our break, what's another piece of advice you'd like to leave for engineers? And we have folks that are on the line that are students in college and grad school all the way through to professionals 20 plus years in the business. What advice would you give them as it relates to floods or developing one's career? This is a popular one on the show, but raise your hand when the opportunity arises. Do it fast because this is how opportunities are generated that propel your experience and knowledge and subsequently your career. With that, sometimes you need to push for the opportunities. Putting your hand up might also mean saying to your supervisor, hey, I'm interested in working on this type of project. Because at the same time, nobody's going to read your mind. So how are they going to know what you're interested in? So that's my biggest piece of advice is to get out there and try things. But also, I guess kind of a second part would be to never stop learning. In the geotechnical field, especially, we're constantly learning new methods and applying new technologies to assess what we can't see. Take the time, read the journal articles, get additional education. It's only going to pay off because at the end of the day, you know, whether you're working on piles or embankments or geosynthetics, the soil mechanics is going to tie together. That's so true. You know, when you sign up to be a geotechnical engineer, you've signed up for a lifetime of learning. So that's like super critical. It's always changing. Always changing. We're going to come back and in just a minute and close this one out with Stefan and our career factor safety end segment. Stick around. It's time for our career factor safety end segment. In geotechnical engineering, just like many disciplines of engineering, it's important to incorporate a factor of safety into your design. But what about incorporating a factor of safety into your career? Today, of course, we're speaking with Stefan Flynn. Stefan, you've already had a very successful career. And when you look back at your career, what's one thing that you implemented in your career to give yourself, let's call it a factor of safety in your career? So for me, it's you know finding ways to turn off your technical mind. I'm not talking about long breaks to prevent burnout. You know, those are important too, but just kind of the micro breaks in your day. Find a hobby that allows you to clear your head. For me, that's going to the gym. When I'm at the gym, I'm only thinking about my next lift or exercise. And that's where I can honestly block out the noise of the day to day. And that's the stuff that really keeps us balanced as we're trying to have fast paced careers, trying to continue to, to move up the ladder, because if it's just work, it's you will burn out. But you can't wait months at a time to do that. You got to find ways to do that every day, a couple times a week. So that's the main thing for me for continuing to move on. That's so important, especially now when folks are doing this hybrid, you know, working from home, sometimes working from the office, it's really easy to just forget to take a break. So 
Stefan, thank you so much for coming on and for sharing all the great insights you did. You shared information. I know it's going to be really good advice for our listeners. And if a listener wanted to find you, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Email or social media? Getting a hold of me through LinkedIn. I'm pretty responsive to messages on there. Email as well. LinkedIn's probably the quickest way to get a hold of me. And what is your email? Email is Stefan, S-T-E-F-A-N dot G dot Flynn, F-L-Y-N-N at usace.army.mil. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This is great. I've enjoyed it. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. Please feel free to go to geotechnicalengineeringpodcast.com where you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, that being episode 40, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Until next time, we wish you the very best in all your geotechnical engineering endeavors. Peace. The Geotechnical Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the host and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineers, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.